The Lords of Chaos. This isn't a story about a death metal band or a series of fantasy novels. No, this is a story of a Florida gang that absolutely menaced one town in 1996. But that's kind of just the tip of the iceberg of the story. The Lords of Chaos kind of devolves into one of the craziest stories we've covered. And I think you're going to love it. Welcome, welcome, welcome into Killing Missing Hidden. I am your host, Brad. I hope your day is going better than mine because I think this is the fifth time I've tried to record this intro. My tongue is not working at all. But nonetheless, I appreciate you being here. I'm glad there's editing software so you don't have to suffer through my incompetence. Uh, This story is going to be one where people may be sending me thank you emails afterwards because it's so off the rails. It is nuts. I try not to oversell what we're going to be talking about, but this one is wackadoo. First, remember our push for 50. No, I'm not going to shut up about it, Gene. We're going to keep talking about it until we get 50 patrons or that pack of cybernetic ninja sea otters finishes the job. Make it easy for both of us. If you're in a position to join, just go ahead and sign up. You'll be my hero. Much like newest patron, Laura. Dear, sweet, beautiful Laura, thank you so much for joining. We love you. If we can ever do anything for you, if you know the code to deactivate the sea otters, we'd appreciate it. And we love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm really excited about this case, so uh, I don't want to waste any more time talking about stuff that doesn't relate to it. Please make sure you've cleaned out. Well, I assume this one's probably going to take an hour. This is going to be like Avengers Endgame of the KMH world. God, I've said all this and now it's going to suck, isn't it, right? Okay, so the Lords of Chaos are probably exactly what you are imagining. I have very little doubt. While in the world of teen dramas, this would be the name of the local Tough Kids gang, not exactly the case here. It is a gang, and it is a gang of teenagers. But a cauldron overflowing with testosterone is not what we are presented with. It would be more like a gang you would expect someone with glasses, who isn't very athletic, who doesn't have much charisma. Okay, it'd be like a gang that I formed. All right, a teenage Brad with his little pimple face acolytes. Let's just cut to the bone here. Actually, gang is not the proper term. Okay, if we're going to be accurate and respectful towards the Lords of Chaos, they considered themselves a militia because that's so much cooler a militia dedicated to raining terror down upon their fellow man. I mean, these guys were having to push the babes aside as they walked down the street, I have no doubt. So the date of their official formation, in case it's not a recognized holiday on your desk calendar, is April 13th in 1996, and they are from Fort Myers, Florida. Now, for those of you who are a little rusty on your Florida geography, Fort Myers is about two hours south of Tampa by car and just about three hours away from Miami. So if you're doing a road trip through Florida 
And you start on the west side of the state. You know, you could hit up Tampa, then Fort Myers, and cut over east to Miami, then head south to Key West. Now, I've never claimed that we're a geography podcast, but maybe, maybe we could look into becoming a travel podcast. We'll stick a pin in that for now. We got to get back to these, these lords of chaos. Now, I know I'm taking a flippant tone with the group, but they actually did some really bad things, which we will get to. Their actions were such that it kind of took the Fort Myers residents out of feeling like they were living in this idyllic, small ocean kingdom. Because crime generally wasn't a big deal in Fort Myers until these guys came along. So let's meet the members of this uh, not-so-merry band. We have to start with Kevin Foster, who was 18, and gave himself the nickname slash codename God. Yep, yep, that's where we start. He was one of the founders of the group and was the clear, unquestioned leader. He was the only one with a criminal record to speak of in so much as you consider, you know, driving violations a criminal record. Um, Now, Foster didn't have a great childhood. He was born in Texas in 1977, and by the time he had started first grade, he had lived in five different states and knew three different fathers or stepfathers. When when things settled down, they settled down in Fort Myers. That's where his family kind of just planted themselves. And by middle school, all evidence was he was a good kid. He was an A student. He got along with kids. He was a little shy, a little awkward, but you know, who isn't in middle school, right? He got into guns and things like that during his teenage years. Um, I think somebody said that his, uh, his three big pursuits when he was a teenager were guns, girls, and goofing off. His mama bought him a shotgun as a Christmas present when he was only 14. During high school, the other kids referred to him as the psycho because of his morbid curiosities that he wasn't really shy about. As he grew older, he developed this odd but very powerful charisma. And not not like in a likable way where you would do things for him because you liked him. It was more the fanatical dictator sort of charisma, you know, the, maybe the Charles Manson type charisma. Um, Kids would obey him because, well, they couldn't really give a reason. Now, when the Lords of Chaos were formed, Foster had already graduated from high school. Okay. Next in our Motley crew is Peter Magnotti. Magnotti was born in California to a dad who was in the military his father retired, however, when he was only two. Um, Magnotti was two, not the dad. And he decided, again, the father, that the family should settle down in a nice, quiet town, preferably somewhere along the beach. And Fort Myers became that destination. Magnotti was actually incredibly bright. He had been tested with an IQ of 153. He didn't care much for schooling, though. Uh, He spent a lot of his time reading and writing comic books and apparently was a really talented illustrator. Magnotti gave himself the nickname Fried, like fried chicken, okay, um, and was the lieutenant of the group. He was responsible for authoring the group's manifesto, which we'll kind of get to later on. 
he lived in the same neighborhood as Foster when they moved down to uh, Fort Myers. And for whatever reason, the pair just quickly became BFFs. They even had those half-heart necklaces that you would... Okay, I'm making that up, but I want it to be true, and that seems like the standard for calling someone, you know, a BFF. Plus, just wanting something to be true seems to be the standard for calling it a fact. All right, moving on. Christopher Black is our next member. No relation to Michael Ian Black of the state fame. And he was the third founding member of the group. He was born in Georgia before his family moved to Fort Myers. Noticing a trend here. Black loved comics himself. He also had a high IQ. He was kind of the short, chubby kid who was really into computers at the time. And he got teased a lot by kids. He was in the same grade as McNaughty. And that's kind of how they became friends as they both got picked on a lot. So they banded together so they wouldn't be alone. Magnati introduced Black to Foster, and they kind of hit it off. Black's name in the group was Slim. He probably has the best nickname of them all. Derek Shields is considered the fourth core member of the group, but his bond wasn't as strong as the other three. He was born in upstate New York and kind of became kind of lost at the age of five when his father abandoned the family. Fortunately, he had an older brother named Peter who kind of really stepped up and he took Shields under his wing and he, he realized that Shields was really good at baseball. So he would take him to baseball practice. He would practice with them and he got to be pretty good. And then the family had to move to Virginia. And in some incident, I never found the details of Peter was murdered. And this really devastated Shields with this going on, the you know, the, the mom just had to get away from Virginia for obvious reasons, and they ended up in Fort Myers. Shields was the sort that got good grades but didn't really put up much effort in school. He was one of the star players of the school baseball team and, like, good enough that college scouts would come and watch him play. Though he had completely different interests than the rest of the group, for some reason he just really got along with Magnati and Black. Uh, Shields took the nickname Mob for the group. Now, what's interesting is Shields and Foster really didn't get along that well, but Shields was too lazy to really care, uh, and he never really challenged his leadership or anything. So, like I said, he was kind of the fourth core member of the group, and he was an active member of the group, but he didn't have the same passion that the other three did. This gang or militia would eventually become eight-member strong, the four other members were Chris Burnett, a.k.a. Red, Thomas Tyrone, a.k.a. Dog, Brad Young, who had not earned a nickname, apparently, and Craig Lash, who also had no nickname. They were considered lesser members by Foster, Magnati, and Black. And a fact I find kind of interesting and ironic, this group of, you know, unpopular kids that are picked on by the jocks and whatnot decides on this name Lords of Chaos, which is just as cringeworthy as possible. And then they choose a symbol to identify with their group. And that symbol was something from the world of mathematics. It was based on an inside joke involving a math question Foster got wrong on a test. Seriously. Not the coolest of background stories, but who am I to judge? Well, I am the host. 
that. And so I do get to be a little snarky, don't I? All right, never, never mind. The symbol was that for an empty set. Um, since we're not a math podcast either, we won't really spend time, you know, exploring the ins and outs of what sets are. But it, it, if you don't know, which I didn't, it kind of looks like a zero with a diagonal line running from the bottom left to the top right. This is what God, Fried, Slim, and Mob chose for their kick butt game. You know, if if I had a gang or a militia, I think we'd have much better nicknames. I think that would be we'd have a we'd have a standard that you'd have to meet. You know, you'd have to have names like Duster or Bones or Hulk. We'll save that for the cult whenever it forms, I reckon. All right, I keep getting off track. Let's let's focus here. Lords of Chaos. Their reign of terror over Fort Myers began on the evening of March 24th, 1996. That is before the official formation date of the gang, okay? But that's when we recognize their activities. Uh, the four kids stole two Jeep Cherokees from a local dealership, drove them to the outskirts of town, and set them on fire. The Jeeps cost about 60 grand each and were both totally destroyed by the fire. Like, one of them was so badly destroyed, police could not get the VIN anywhere on it. There was so much damage, which is impressive and also means that obviously some sort of accelerant was used. Apparently, the Lords watched their little act of arson from atop a nearby grain silo. And thus began their symphony of destruction. Well, symphony may not be the right word. How about chamber music ensemble of destruction? Is that more accurate? The next act of vengeance against the world occurred a few days later when the boys built a bomb. A simple one, but a bomb nonetheless. They placed it inside of a soda can and then somehow managed to sneak in and duct tape it to the underside of a pharmacy counter at the local Walmart. Now, Foster called the pharmacy to make a bomb threat, but whoever answered her in the pharmacy just hung up on him. Foster was kind of ticked, and so he called back and, you know, tried to tell the employee, look, you got to evacuate the store. We put a, bo uh, a bomb in there. But the employee just kind of dog cussed the kid for making prank calls and hung up again. Now, not being deterred by such minor setbacks, Foster called yet a third time. And this time he said, no, no, I'm serious. Look under the, the register in the counter in the back corner and the bomb's there. And he got hung up on again. And that employee who answered the phone never even bothered to look. He just complained to one of his fellow coworkers who kind of thought that maybe they should look into it. And when he looked under the register, yeah, there's a bomb there. Uh, you know, they saw the soda can duct tape there with wires sticking out and actually smartly, you know, uh, evacuated the Walmart. And fortunately, no one was hurt. I'm just imagining that employee telling Foster something like, look, I heard your threat, but I don't care. I work retail, okay? You don't think I beg for the sweet release of death every day? And I, I say that as a veteran of the retail workforce. Once that bomb threat was taken seriously, of course, the police had to swarm the building, the bomb squad was called in, all those fun things that cost taxpayers lots of money. These wacky kids, huh? Lords of Chaos then just kind of spent the next week or so committing petty acts of vandalism, 
you know, uh, they threw rocks through car windows at a local church one Wednesday night. They busted the plate glass windows out of stores at a few shopping centers. They randomly opened fire hydrants throughout the city. They would try to knock over road signs. They one night broke the windshields of multiple off-duty and unwatched taxi cabs. Lots of vandalism. All of it stupid. All of it immature. Kids just being kids who need a good punch in the face. The, the main three of the group visited a restaurant known as The Hut after it was closed one evening looking for something to steal. When they got inside, they heard what sounded like monkeys coming from the back. And when they got to the source of the noise, it was actually two macaws in a cage. Macaws are those really pretty colorful birds that kind of resemble parrots. Well, they're actually part of the parrot family, so I guess they don't resemble parrots. They are a type of parrot. I'm, I'm sure you've seen them. I'm sure. Okay, okay. I'm rambling again. So... These three super awesome mastermind villains decided that it would be so wicked to kill the birds. Um, they actually set the cage on fire. Fortunately, one of the macaws survived. At the time of the crime, the macaws were worth around three grand each, and the cage sold for about $1,000. So in an effort to look for something to steal, they decided to burn up $7,000 worth of bird and cage. And, you know, this, this is kind of a significant moment to me in the mindset of this group because we go from vandalism and property destruction and thievery to, you know, killing animals. And, you know, every time you read about a killer who liked to kill animals when they were young, it, the, their story never ends well, does it? Unfortunately for Foster, their antics were not drumming up the media attention he so desired. All they got was being called, quote, pea-brained vandals in the small community paper. He wanted the Lords of Chaos to be feared. So Foster decided that something big needed to happen on April 19th. It was the third anniversary of the siege at Waco, and the one-year anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. So they wanted to bring a bang to Fort Myers in retaliation for the government's actions. Don't know what actions, and I'm guessing the kids probably don't know what actions either, but it sounds good, right? So that's when we get to the manifesto. It was officially titled, quote, Declaration of War, Formal Introduction of Lords of Chaos, which as I said earlier, was primarily authored by Magnati. The manifesto, which I looked, but I couldn't find like a full copy of it, warned Fort Myers that it was dealing with an intelligent and formidable foe with, quote, and I love this, balls of titanium alloy, which is oddly specific. So good. And they had a wicked destructive streak. It promised the Lords of Chaos would usher in a new coming of God through destruction of biblical proportions that would just slay the populace. Now, that manifesto was completed on the evening of April 17th. Foster wanted it mailed to the most powerful man in the free world, the Fort Myers city clerk. 
Though for some reason that never occurred. I guess they kind of overlooked that part. I don't know. They had a lot going on in their lives. Manifestos are a lot of work, I assume. So on April 19th, the boys loaded up one of their pickup trucks with 10 stolen propane tanks and drove to an old abandoned Coca-Cola bottling plant in town. Now, this just wasn't some dilapidated building. This was a designated historic landmark in the town. Somehow, they managed to sneak the truck inside the building unseen. They unloaded the propane takes one at a time, turned on their valves to start releasing the gas. Once they got the 10th one on the ground, they used an empty empty, uh, Pepsi can. I, I assume there was supposed to be some irony in that. But they used this empty Pepsi can as a flash bomb and then hurried away from the scene in their truck. The fuse on it was long enough so that they were able to park a few blocks away so they could witness the destruction, which did indeed happen. Uh, It showered U.S. Highway 41 with glass and other debris. It was such a big explosion, it caused about $100,000 worth of damage. And fun fact for all you South Park fans... The propane takes were stolen from a store called Starvin' Marvin's. On April 26th, Foster and McNaughty robbed and carjacked Shields' landlord because they heard him refer to Shields' mother as white trash. And maybe because the landlord also owned a diner and he was rumored to take the cash home with them each night, which turned out not to be true this night. The landlord was fortunately uninjured in the attack, but the boys took his car and destroyed it before abandoning it kind of off in Nowheresville. All right, one of the worst things we're going to talk about, but it's also kind of a stupid plan. They wanted to do it, commit a mass shooting at Disney World. And they had this really, really overly complicated plan to make that happen. So, Disney World apparently was holding a graduation night. All the graduates from Florida high schools could come down. There would be, you know, kind of a party for them. And they decided they were going to infiltrate this party. So, step one was they were going to go to a local department store and steal clothes they needed to dress the part. Apparently, this was not a shorts and t-shirts or event. I'm guessing it was probably jacket and tie. Step two was when they got into Disney World, they were going to sneak away and find, somehow, where the character costumes were kept. Step three was... Again, somehow, they were going to sneak the character costumes either out of the park or put them in a spot in the park where nobody else would find them. And then step four, they were going to come back to Disney World with firearms, dress up as the characters, and then just start a shooting. But the plan never quite got off the ground. See, to steal the clothes from the department store, they decided that what they would do is go to the local Army-Navy surplus store and buy a smoke grenade. They were going to find the clothes they needed, and once they were ready to go, they were going to 
trigger the smoke grenade. It was either just going to be tossed or it was set up to a tripwire. I'm going to guess the tripwire because that's even more unnecessarily elaborate. And so once the smoke started going off and the chaos that that would cause, they were going to sneak out with the clothes. Well, what they didn't know is that an Army-Navy surplus store is not going to sell you a live grenade. So they bought essentially a dummy grenade. And when they tried to make it go off, nothing happened, and they panicked, and they just ran for freedom. So... As awful as that plan was, thank God they were Dr. Dr. Evil level of stupid in planning it. Okay, now we get to the big one. The night of April 30th. The event that kind of signaled the high watermark of the Lords of Chaos, but also effectively ended their terroristic activities. The plan for April 30th was to set the high school on fire. I've seen conflicting reports on who exactly was involved in this activity, but Black is often mentioned as being there with Tyrone, one of the lesser members of the squad, if you'll remember. Court documents indicate Foster was also there, which makes sense because this was a big attack. Why wouldn't the leader be with the group? And again, according to court documents, the remaining members of the group gang slash militia were apparently kind of spread out as lookouts around the school with the bulk of them being concentrated in the auditorium area because that's where they plan to set the fire. So Black and Tyrone and Foster are the ones that go into the school and before they set the fire they decide they were going to see what they could steal. So what do they steal you ask? Well like any good criminal masterminds, they, they understand the value of a good stapler. So they got several staplers. I think three of those big old cans of peaches that you see on, you know, lunchrooms and naval warships and things like that. And a fire extinguisher. They didn't really want the fire extinguisher, but it was being used to, as they marched through the halls, to break windows and things like that. Foster carried with them a Clorox bottle that was full of gasoline. And that was going to be what he used to start the fire in the auditorium. Alas, Fort Myers would see no burning school that night. Mark Schwebs, the school's band director, surprisingly showed up out of nowhere and parked right in front of the auditorium. Once they saw the band director arriving, most of the group just ran. But Black and Tyrone, for some reason, stayed behind, and they were the ones holding all the stolen loot. Since they were students at the school still, Mr. Schwebs recognized them, and he kind of seized the boys. He took the stolen property, and he said, you two and me and the principal and a local cop, we're all going to have a little meeting about this in the morning, okay? There are few truths In this crazy world, but here is one of them. A group known as the Lords of Chaos, led by a teenager nicknamed God, is not going to take such a slap in the face lightly. Black was furious when he rejoined the rest of the squad and declared with malice in his heart that someone had to die over this atrocity. And Foster agreed. 
Uh, Foster apparently worried that if Black, or particularly Tyrone, were arrested, the Lords of Chaos would be exposed and held accountable for all their criminal acts. Tyrone was apparently very emotional when Mr. Schwebs showed up. And so that's why Foster thought, we can't rely on this dude. So that night, a plan was hastily constructed. Mr. Schwebs was going to have to die. Now, this was not the unanimous position of the group. Indeed, Shields claimed that Foster had to load his shotgun and point it at the group to get everybody on board with the plan. But that kind of bonded them all together. Schwebs declared, I'm sorry, uh, Foster declared that Black had the right of first refusal for killing Mr. Schwebs, but Foster would carry it out if Black couldn't or didn't want to. They decided against trying to stage the murder to look like a robbery or anything like that. They wanted people to know this was a pure assassination. So Foster obviously supplied the gun. Black's job was to find Mr. Schweb's address. Uh, Another member of the group was sent out to steal a license plate so they could attach it to the vehicle they were going to use when they left the house. When they were divvying up responsibilities, it was determined that the core four, Foster Black, Magnati, and Shields, would be the ones to participate in the murder. Shields was the most against this plan. He may have been the reason the shotgun was pulled. And in fact, according to undisputed court testimony, he apparently, his I think his job was to get ski masks and gloves and when he he went to his house to get them and when he was about to leave he pulled out of his driveway started pulling out of his neighborhood then turned around and came back home and sat in his driveway for about five to ten minutes deciding whether or not he could really do this but he showed up just the same when they got to the car foster kind of split up the responsibilities Black was going to be the driver. Magnati would be the lookout. Shields was going to have to be the one to knock on the front door as a decoy because he was the only one that had been in band. And Mr. Schwebs knew who he was, and they felt like Mr. Schwebs seeing one of his students at the door would be most likely to get him to open the door and step out where... Foster could then shoot him and kill him. Now, early on in the planning, apparently, they just kicked Tyrone out of it altogether and said, you're not part of this, you're too upset, go away. Now, while they were driving there, Magnati really expressed a lot of trepidation about being involved in a murder. But he was in the car already, and he gave in to peer pressure, especially when he was assured by Foster that, look, We're using a shotgun. We're using buckshot. There's no way police can trace that back to my weapon. So we won't even be looked at. Don't worry about it. Now, why did they need four people to kill one teacher? There's a simple answer for that. It's because Foster wanted an audience if he was going to do this. On the way to Mr. Schweb's house, Foster was gleeful and sang a particularly insane version of Santa Claus is coming to town. And I happen to have the lyrics right here just for you. 
He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better shut up and prepare to die. Kevin Foster's coming to your house. The boys arrived at Mr. Schwib's house at about 11.30 p.m., and the plan, everything went perfectly. Everything. The road was empty the entire time they were there. All the neighbor's lights were off. The only light that was on was Mr. Schwebs. Shields went with Foster to the front door. Foster got into the shadows. Shields knocked on the door. Sure enough, Mr. Schwebs kind of cracked the door, looked out, saw Shields and opened it up and said, you know, what are you doing here? Shields didn't know what to say, so he just ran away. Well, Mr. Schwebs kind of gave two sips of a chase and then froze and kind of watched, like, what's going on here? When he heard a rustling to his right. When he turned to his right, he saw Foster standing in the shadows with a shotgun. Foster shot Mr. Schwebs two times, once square in the face and a second time in the groin. That second shot was because Foster believed Mr. Schwebs was a homosexual. Foster and Shields ran back to the car and the four boys sped away without being seen. Shields was an absolute wreck as they drove away. He was shaking and crying and just kept repeating over and over, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Meanwhile, Foster just sat there cool as a cucumber, like they had just been to Taco Bell or something, you know, not a care in the world. The gunshots woke up several neighbors. The police were called. It just so happened that at the same time of this killing, there was a massive accident on the interstate that was in Fort Myers' jurisdiction. So most of the on-duty cops were there, and it was not nearby Mr. Schwab's house. So it took a little time for cops to show up. Once they did, they quickly discovered Mr. Schwab's dead near his front door. The medical examiner later determined that the first shot to the face almost certainly killed Mr. Schwebs instantly. The boys returned to Foster's house where they celebrated. Foster forced them on to like a football type puddle, you know, and he personally congratulated each of them for sticking with the plan and doing their jobs. And, you know, look, when we work together and we stay in our lane and we pull off our assignments, look what we can accomplish. Foster then continued the celebration by calling Burnett and Tyrone to let them know what had occurred. The next day, which would be May 1st, 1996, Foster went over to Young's house and spent the day with them. When it was time for the news to come on, Foster insisted they watch it. And sure enough, the lead story was the killing of Mr. Schwebs. Um, Foster was just giddy and was giggling like a schoolgirl during the report. He told Young all about what he did. He said he looked Mr. Schwebs dead in the eyes before he pulled the trigger. He described the cloud of red that exploded from his face. Totally normal reaction, right? The boys get lucky again. The bo- The police's initial reaction to this killing was to start investigating in a totally different direction because 
It was kind of an open secret at the school that Mr. Schwebs was known to be involved with a fellow teacher. But that fellow teacher wasn't single. And because Mr. Schwebs was shot in the groin, this led police to believe that maybe there was some sort of sexual motive behind the killing. Like, maybe the boyfriend got really ticked off that Mr. Schwebs wouldn't leave his, leave his lady alone. And that was just one of those shots for good measure to let him know, I've destroyed you. Now, as I've mentioned before, and as inspired by the wisdom of good old Ben Franklin, two people can get away with murder if one of them is dead. Here, we have eight. Not people, but teenagers. Several of the fringe members of the group really couldn't hold their tongue. They were too excited. Lash was the first to break his silence. He made it less than 24 hours. And he told his girlfriend that he was involved in the murder, and he claimed he was the one that knocked on Mr. Schwebb's door. The girlfriend, in turn, managed to keep this information a secret for about 24 hours, so she lasted longer than Lash, before she told her mom. Her mom said, okay, get your boyfriend over here. So Lash came over, the three of them sat down at the kitchen table, she, the mom had Lash tell her story again, tell his story again, and then she did the perfect thing. She grabbed her purse. She said, let's go take a ride. And she drove him straight to the police. Now, Lash holds out under police questioning for all of about 18 seconds. He tell, tells detectives everything he knows about the murder. Now, remember, he wasn't there for the whole plan. Um, in fact, Excuse me. Lash actually wasn't there for the bulk of the plan. Once they decided they were going to do the murder, that's when Lash was dismissed because he was the newest member of the gang and they weren't sure they could trust him. That's also when Tyrone was dismissed because he was so upset. So he tells them what he knows. He tells them, and he knew who was participating in it. He also tells the police about um, that little explosion at the bottling plant that the Lords of Chaos orchestrated. It was before Lush's time, but they had bragged about it enough. He knew what went down. He also let the police know that their next planned bit of criminal activity was to rob a Hardy's fast food restaurant where Shields and Magnati worked. Now, the police did something smart here. Major props to the police here. Rather than instantly going out and just arresting everybody and then looking for the evidence, they decided, you know, if these kids, based on how quickly they move from criminal act to criminal act to criminal act, we probably don't have to wait wrong, long before they rob that Hardee's, right? And if they're going to rob the Hardee's, they're probably going to use the same guns and equipment they used to kill Mr. Schweppes. So let's just stake out the Hardee's. And two days later, who would show up but Shields and Magnati with guns, with face masks, all that stuff, ready to rob the place after it had shut down. Police stormed the vehicle and found everything they needed. They even found newspaper clippings about Mr. Schwab's murder that were being stored in the trunk. Foster's fingerprints were on everything, literally everything, including the trigger of the shotgun. 
Apparently, he chose not to wear gloves during the murder. Police naturally searched the boys' houses. Computers were seized. Notebooks were confiscated. When they went to Foster's house, police also found that he owned more than 20 handguns and rifles. Magnati, Black, and Shields all immediately flipped on Foster after being arrested. Magnati, who was the first to flip, was offered 32 years in prison for the crimes he had committed, which he instantly agreed to. Black and Shields were both offered life in prison without the possibility of parole, and they accepted the offer. Burnett received two years in prison as part of his plea agreement, and Tyrone received one year in jail. Young, like I mentioned earlier, I believe, Young um, certainly received no punishment because he was so new to the gang they couldn't link him to any of the previous crimes. And I couldn't confirm it, but it appears that Lash also did not go to jail for the same reason. But all seven of the boys testified against Foster. Now, Foster was the last one they dealt with. And the prosecutors offered him life without parole to avoid a trial, but he refused to accept the deal. I get it. Nobody wants to agree to live in a cage for the rest of their life. But it gets you off a death row. And you have a chance at living and maybe doing something with your life while you're in prison. Your opportunities aren't there, but... People have done good things while in prison. Foster's trial went very, very poorly, and he ended up being sentenced to death. It only took the jury about two hours to find Foster guilty, and then the jury recommended death by a vote of nine to three. The Florida Supreme Court affirmed the verdict in 2000, and as we speak, Foster continues to wait his turn on Florida's death row. So that's the story of the... No, that's not the entire story. We actually have some aftermath we need to sort through, but unfortunately, that's going to take a long time. Way too long to cram all this into one episode, so we're going to split this one up into a two-parter. I know, I'm sorry, I can hear the groans. But the second part is essentially kind of an entirely different case with an entirely different story that gets way darker. And if you don't want to wait a week to hear how this one ends, we may be releasing it a touch early on Patreon. Maybe. I don't know. We'll just have to check it out. See for yourself. As far as analysis, you know, where do you start, right? Um... It's shocking what a monster Foster was. We obviously knew the boy wasn't right when he took on the name God for the group. This kid, and I think it's important to remember he was only 18 when the story was unfolding. But this kid was a walking nightmare. Um, I kind of think we're lucky he only killed one person. And honestly, after listening to the story, how many people do you think he would be capable of killing if he was given another chance at freedom. I mean, my answer would be based on how many rounds of ammunition he could carry. I think he's just of that mindset. 
And you want to hear something really wild? The neighborhood where Foster lived, he was considered a good kid. He babysat lots of other kids in the neighborhood. There was one child who was dying from cancer, and he made, he, he made a special point. He would go play with that kid every week. He would buy him little things to cheer him up. He tried to offer that kid comfort as he was slowing dying. There was an elderly woman in his neighborhood who was in a wheelchair. He would go over there and cut her grass, help her with her groceries. Um, when he was sentenced at the sentencing hearing, literally dozens of people showed up in support of Foster. And they said, this is a good kid. We don't know what's happened here, but from we've known him most of his life, and he's always been a good kid. But it seems like, in my opinion, his mother didn't encourage him in the right ways. And that caused Foster to develop into what he was. I think if in a normal family environment, he would have developed into a good person and been a blessing on this world. But instead, he rots in a cage today, and deservingly so. I feel a little, and I stress little, bad for the other kids involved with Foster. They certainly deserve the punishments they got. I'm not saying that. But once they chose to associate with Foster, I feel like they really lost a lot of control over their lives. I feel like Foster was just that demanding of a militia leader. His personality was just way too strong, and they were too young to resist it. And, you know, this is a perfect example for any kids who are listening, why your parents make a big deal about who you hang out with. Peer pressure plus a strong personality. It kind of reminds us of the Skylar Niece case all over again, doesn't it? Um, just as a point of interest, I, I thought I'd note that Magnati is scheduled to be released from custody in July of 2023. And there's something else that needs to be highlighted. I didn't hide this fact, but I didn't condense it in a way that I think we can fully appreciate it. This story took place from the end of March when the first crime was committed to May 3rd when everybody was put in handcuffs. So we're talking like a month here. These kids were just amazing at being bad. I mean, they were like at the Batman villain levels of destruction, burning cars and smashing storefronts, killing birds, blowing up historic buildings, <laughs> trying to burn down the school. And it's topped only by a stupid, stupid murder. Um, one minor blessing that I see that I'm really happy about is that this whole thing took place before the Columbine shootings because I have no doubt that Foster would have taken on those two as idols and done something truly horrible before he was stopped. I mean, we already had a Columbine-level plan with the Disney World shooting, right? But thank God that one fell apart. Thank God they tried to make it too complicated. You know, as an attorney with, with the offers that were going on, um... I have no clue why Foster insisted on going to trial. He either had a weak lawyer who refused to lay down the law to his client or Foster was just too stubborn for his own good. I mean, I, I've had clients like this before 
And, you know, we've always had some sort of conversation at the 11th hour that was like, look, this is the best I can do for you, okay? This deal is as good as it gets. We walk into that courtroom, things only get worse. We don't win, okay? And there's a, no way a jury can look at this evidence and not hold someone responsible. And the only person in that courtroom that they can hold responsible, the only person that can take the blame all, for all this is you. So take the damn deal so you don't spend the rest of your life in jail. That usually worked. Overall, I have no complaints with how the boys were punished. The state made fair offers based on their degree of culpability. I thought it was a rather enlightened approach. In fact, they didn't just have cookie-cutter deals for everybody. And because they made fair offers, seven of the eight boys were dealt with very smoothly. Um, you know, obviously the ones in the car deserved the toughest punishments, and they got the toughest punishments. Those involved in the vandalism deserve punishments too. If I were the judge for those kids involved in the vandalism, I think, and again, I say this as a defense attorney, so I have my biases, but I think I would have made the sentences a little bit longer. Um, if they were still minors and they were heard in juvenile court, you know, the, the court's hands are tied and how much of a, of a sentence they can give. But assuming they were involved in adult court proceedings, I don't know, one year and two years just doesn't seem, just doesn't seem like enough to me for what happened here. I mean, we ended up with one man dead, one boy on death row, two more serving life in prison, four others that had served some measure of, of jail time, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage, a dead bird, <laughs> And all these, because these kids wanted to play gangster. Um, I mean, it is what it is. There's no reason to sulk about what could have been. These boys made their beds. I'm just here to share the story. So let's move on to the palate cleanser, okay? I asked my dog what two minus two was. And he said nothing. Get it? Get it? Yeah, uh-huh. A dumb one, kind of funny, cute. Hope you enjoyed it. All right. Again, please, Patreon, go check it out. It is a need in your life, not a want. Uh, if you're wanting a little KMH all over your body, you want to feel our warm embrace over your tenders, remember we've got merchandise for sale on our website. Pretty good stuff, actually. Much better than our last supplier. I'm really happy with it. So you'll dig it. Um... It's not crazy expensive, actually. Their prices from my supplier are pretty fair, so, um, and I'm not gouging anybody. Uh, so check it out. Uh, but with that, I will bid adieu. We've had some fun together this week, but I'm afraid it must end. Thank you for always supporting our show. You all mean the world to me. Now let's go kick some butt in the real world by doing a bunch of nice things, okay? Love you all. Brad out. Thank you for listening to Killing, Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.